This is The Red Line, where we talk to three expert witnesses about one issue shaping the news both here and overseas. Guns for hire is nothing new. It was one of the first ever professions, exchanging money for protection. And this has been serious business for a long time now. But today, things have escalated from a purely protectional role and have spiraled into full offensive roles, with hit squads, propaganda networks, and even government changes, all now waging an unchecked war with everything from Soviet hand grenades through to Chinese airborne drones. PMCs, or private military companies, have become rife in the battlefields of the world today, providing terrorists in Nigeria to protecting oil fields in Western China, more and more people are turning to these unregulated contract soldiers to do their dirty work. Is this the future of warfare? Company versus company? Or is this a disturbing trend that sees governments palming off the nastiest parts of war to someone else to theoretically keep their hands clean for the voters? Well, for that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1 Blurring the line. PMCs are private military companies, but they have many names, private security companies, contingency contractors, but essentially we're talking about uh, armed civilians who fight in a paramilitary style for profit in foreign wars. Many people around the world consider them to be a little more than mercenaries. Sean McFate is one of the world's biggest experts on PMCs having even debated Eric Prince on the Al Jazeera network. He is a professor of strategy at Georgetown University, as well as the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. He is also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and has done multiple tours for the U.S. Army and as a PMC himself. And he joins us today. And mercenaries kind of went underground for about 150 years. And after the Cold War ended, they started to pop back up in South Africa, of all places, executive outcomes. Uh, but it really, the market really kicked into full gear when the United States went into Iraq and Afghanistan and used them extensively. And now that the U.S. is no longer using them, they've gone and found new clients. And those clients are states, but they're also big companies and super rich individuals. So how does a PMC's role differ from, let's say, a standard grunt soldier's role? Well, many of the personnel um, come from the military. I am one. I served as a paratrooper in the U.S. Army's 82nd Air War Division as an officer. And then I, I sort of, they say, went to the dark side. I, I went to the, the PMC world, some would say the mercenary world. Uh, and most of my colleagues who were at the pointy end of the stick, as they say, were like me, but they're from nations across the world. I served with special operations guys from Latin America, from Australia, from um, everywhere. Um, So the job that they do is the skill sets are very similar, but there's there's some key differences, too. Well, the first is, is that they have to be conflict entrepreneurs. Um, and they 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 have to sort of check their ideology on the side. If there's a you know if you if you're a very hardcore soldier, you never you know hang up your holsters to work for a, a company whose main goal is profit. That would be seen as um, disloyal to your cause of, of you know the Aus- Australia or the United States of America. Uh, so 
but these these soldiers are a little bit more, shall we say, morally flexible, and they try to find opportunities for their companies. And they're talking about complex post-conflict places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. There's always more work to be done, whether it's legitimate or illegitimate. And what theaters are we seeing PMCs in? What countries are they most active? So the conflict markets are what draw PMCs and mercenaries. I'm going to use those words a little loosely and interchangeably right now. Um, So where we're seeing them right now are all over eastern Ukraine, Syria, Iraq, Yemen has a lot. Um, Parts of Horn of Africa, Congo is like a never-ending conflict market. Um, We're seeing Nigeria use them against Boko Haram. We have seen them in Venezuela. Basically, any place there's a conflict market, that is what attracts, that's the demand that attracts mercenary supply. So let's stay with Yemen for a second. If a PMC was to flaunt the rules of a country, you know, shoot a civilian, commit war crimes, who are they accountable to? Well... No one really knows. (laughs) And this is one of the selling points of PMCs. The reason, and we can talk about this in a bit, the reason we're seeing their widespread and increased and growing use amongst the entire world is that they sell plausible deniability, and this really matters in information age. Warfare is changing. And one of the things that you might want to hire a PMC to do, as we've seen a lot of governments do, is you want them to do the really high risk stuff that you don't want to do, or you want them to do really nasty things that you don't want your own soldiers doing, like potentially human rights violations. Because if they get caught, they give good plausible deniability. They can say, we don't know who we work for. Uh, Or even if they do get caught, Who's going to try them? So just say you have, um, I'm just making this up, you have a Ugandan private military uh, contractor uh, wipes out a family in Yemen on a UAE contract, okay? So where is he tried? He tried in Yemen, uh, where the crime happened. Is he tried in Uganda, where he's from? Is he tried at the UAE, who's the client? Or is he not tried at all because it's a complete blipping mess. It's the last. And that's one reason, I think, why we're seeing the, the growth of this industry is because they allow you to commit crimes kind of with impunity. So is there a limit to what they can use? Are they uh, just using rifles and, and grenades? Or are they actually having access to you know big things like artillery and, uh, and drones? They can use anything they can get their hands on. I mean, one of the interesting things about this sector, the private military sector, is that they sort of bring some of the innovation of the private sector into warfare so you don't like have these massive bureaucracies which take you know 15 years and several billions of dollars to develop something they can take something cheap offline they can find it on on the web and they can modify it they can get a drone they can modify it into a kamikaze drone fleet right? Um, They're getting increasingly more sophisticated. Mercenaries, for example, also, they could be really um, hardcore. So Nigeria had a Boko Haram problem. And Boko Haram, as your listeners know, it's a extreme, uh, you know, violent Islamic terrorist group, sort of like ISIS um, in Nigeria. And for six years, the Nigerian military could not contend with Boko Haram inside of Nigeria's borders. And the Nigerian military is not a weak military. In 2015, the Nigerian government secretly hired a bunch of mercenaries who came mostly from 
South Africa area and former Soviet republics, they showed up with MI-24 Hind helicopters. These are like Russian flying tank helicopters that the Russians used like in the Afghan war. They showed up with special operations units that are equal to uh, special SAS or SBS. And they did a search and destroy. And within weeks, they pushed up Boko Haram from Nigeria. Um, you know, even if the world says, we know you did it, it's really hard to hold them accountable for that. So mercenaries just offer one more layer of plausible deniability. Does it fool everybody? No. But does it complicate holding people accountable? Yes, it does. So keeping on the weapon capabilities, if these guys were to launch chemical weapons or some sort of illegal weapon on behalf of a nation state, who would end up being accountable for that? Well, it would be difficult because they, again, they offer a layer of plausible deniability. Um, it's not like you catch a bunch of little green men in Ukraine. You can say they're obviously Russian. Uh, they, you can hire special operations units. Now, these are not just these are not just like the lone dudes in the Congo that we see in bad Hollywood movies. These are highly sophisticated, highly capable expertise at the very top. At the very bottom, it's a swamp. But at the very top, they have some you know, real legit tier one capabilities. And if you wanted to use them to deploy WMD and and make it use a bad pun murky about who is behind it it's a it's a new weapon of choice that we should be concerned about and you said tier one there what is a tier one capability so tier one is a, a highly skilled elite trooper like an sas sbs delta seal stuff like that so we have those and it's not just from countries like russia we have uh tier one x seals x green berets working as mercenaries in Yemen as hit squads for Middle East monarchies. And what roles do they take? What are the jobs of PMCs? One thing they can do is direct action, which is sort of, you know, force on force. They can also do professionalizing your, your armed forces or militia. So you send them in, you have a militia group, or you have a, a military, and you want to make them better, and they'll train and equip them. Uh, you can also have them do strategic reconnaissance. Um, and oil companies use them. Extractive industry uses them for that purpose. Like they want to go into the to the Katanga in the Congo. It's a mineral rich, lawless area for the most part and find out, you know, so who's who in the zoo. They can do all and they work with private intelligence as well. So if they aren't technically a part of the nation's military, are they receiving the classified briefings and information? You know, a private company getting given information on upcoming offensives? Well, if, if it's a government client asking them to do a government thing on the lowdown, then they might get a um, they might get a classified brief, maybe illegally. Um, or if it's if they're working for the government, whether it's uh, like when I was uh, in the industry, I held clearances and I still use them, and uh, I did work for the U.S. government in Africa. Um, you know, Wagner Group, who works for the GRU in Russia, which is the military intelligence agency, probably gets the same, at least the top leadership does. Um, you know, is that legally, is that legal by the domestic laws of that country? It's hard to say. So I'm curious, do these guys get in with a tourist visa or do they come in on a working visa? How do they get into the country? No, they, they could, um, they can enter as tourists. They could not, they can enter illegally. Um, they could enter under the auspices of the client government. Uh, 
or they can enter on the auspices of, like, say, a, a mining company or an oil company hires them uh, under their special like work visa program or something like that. There's all sorts of ways they can infiltrate a country. So the big proposal that keeps getting thrown around by people like Eric Prince is the privatizing of the Afghan war, uh, replacing NATO with private soldiers. Uh, do you think this is a good idea? The idea that 6,500 mercenaries can pacify Afghanistan in 12 months or less is ludicrous. Even if you do create a, a, a private military force, how do you control it? You're vulnerable to Praetorianism. And Praetorianism is, you know, if you think about the Roman Praetorian Guard, they're the, the elite bodyguard of Roman emperors who later on became not just the gatekeepers from an emperors, but they sort of had palace coups and took over and even auctioned off the Roman emperor's seat at one point. So uh, controlling mercenaries is hard. What happens if they go into league with the Taliban or with narcos selling poppies? Um, this is the oldest one. The oldest problems of the market for force is contract enforcement, safety and accountability. So in the event of, let's say, a, a handover of Afghanistan to the PMCs, would that also leave control of the country's resources to the PMCs? So Eric Prince's plan was that he was going to mine uh, rare earth minerals from North Afghanistan and presumably get them to market through by building railroads and selling them through China, right? And um, the... The problem is, is what happens if the mercenaries become a de facto kingdom around uh, the mines? And that's, we've seen a lot of history of that in the Middle Ages and even in the last 30 years where um, mercenaries are worried about, frankly, being uh, screwed by their employer. So they work on a barter system where they control like a diamond mine or an oil field or something like that. Um, but then at that point, they're, they're, they're like a small feudal kingdom. Uh, and is that, that's not pacifying or quote unquote fixing Afghanistan. That's creating another thing to fight in Afghanistan. It's not helping. So a lot of individuals serve in the armed forces to defend and protect their country, but PMCs are a company and they don't necessarily have a country. Uh, do you see cases of, let's say, American PMCs taking money from other nations to work against their own birth country? Well, this is the central question of, um, look, the, the question, there's a couple questions here that you, this is a, an important question you raise. One is that uh, it really depends on the individual. Because if you think about it, there's a spectrum between a pure soldier and a pure mercenary. And most people are somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, where they do something purely for ideological, patriotic reasons, or they do something purely for money, no matter how unethical the deed. Um, not all mercenaries, in my experience, will do something evil uh, just for the paycheck. They, there's a lot of American mercenaries and contractors I know who would never work for China, as Eric Prince has done. There's also soldiers who don't want to serve in the U.S. military, but they re-enlist because they get a $90,000 re-enlistment bonus, which is quite transactional and would make most contractors salivate. So that's kind of mercenary-like, too, but it's happening in the U.S. Army. So we're all somewhere in that, that middle spectrum. Um, but I do think it raises important questions about how, um, when you privatize war, it changes warfare in profound ways because suddenly market strategies enter the world of warfare. It's like 
Adam Smith meets Klaus And there are strategies you can now use in war to defeat your enemy by like buying off their mercenaries, by retaining all the mercenaries in a region to deny your enemy a defense. These were commonly known strategies during the era of, say, of Machiavelli and uh, the Middle Ages in, in Renaissance Italy. But today they're forgotten by almost every four-star general. And we're entering a world which is becoming increasingly privatized warfare where these strategies matter more and more and we're not prepared for it. So I know this isn't a new problem, but how do you think the PMC market has changed over just the last 10 years? 10 years ago, it wasn't really a free market. It was something called a monospony, which means that there was one big sugar daddy client that was the United States government in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they kind of dictated the rules of the rogues and market power. Now it's like a free agent. Uh, it's a free market where you have supply and demand and they ratchet each other up. And remember that mercenaries, you know, force private security contractors, it's the one commodity that you cannot regulate by law. Because, you know, who's going to go in to Yemen and arrest all those mercenaries or all those contractors? Nobody. Uh, the UN's not going to do it. The, you know, no nation state's going to do it because you're, those contractors can shoot your law enforcement dead. They can resist arrest. Um, and that's why uh, those who think we can turn to international law, the United Nations, to control this problem are frankly dreaming. We have resurrected a mercenary trade that was akin, it's going to become akin to the Middle Ages in a couple more decades, and it's going to change global po politic power. I mean, who, the super rich will have more power, the Fortune 500, uh, super rich individuals, they're going to have more power than the many states, uh, and that's going to be a very different world. After the Iraq war, PMCs have exploded in popularity amongst the international community often allowing big corporations to wield more military might than small nations. If all the dirty work gets done by an American wearing a PMC badge rather than a flag, do you think the citizens of the invaded countries are likely to see the difference? Or will they hold the grudges all the same? How do these countries feel about PMCs? And why would someone leave their job serving the nation to work for a company who may pay them to fight against it? Well, for that, we turn to our next guest. Part 2. Bad Reputation The first time I actually came across any uh, PMCs, uh, private military contractors, was in 2003. And um, there's a certain section that was actually sectioned off to ensure protection of the citizens that live there. And at one point, there was a convoy of private military contractors that pulled up and come to find out that they were actually escorting Paul Bremer. And for those that remember who Paul Bremer was, uh, he was actually the like first ambassador, if I'm not mistaken, to uh, between the U.S. and Iraq. Alex Kirch is a sergeant first class in the U.S. Army who has served four tours in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. He is also the host of the Depth of Perspective podcast, which talks all things U.S. politics and the armed forces. Alex is an active member of the military, and all views here are expressed are his own and not those of the U.S. military. He joins us today. One of the first big times was there was a uh, time we were rolling outside to conduct a standard patrol, traveling up and down MSR Tampa. For those that have actually served, people know Tampa. Tampa was one of the most uh, dangerous or frequently traveled routes aside from Route Irish. And there was this one time we were not too far away from a uh, private military contractor convoy, and there was a car that was pulled off to the side of the road. And, you know, we 
thought we'd check that out because it was very suspicious and there was a family in there. And the family actually talked about how at the time the rules of engagement essentially meant that if a vehicle was in front of you, you had to follow your escalation of force. You had to show that you're coming through and they had to get out of the way kind of deal. Well, I guess these guys didn't want to wait for them to get out of the way because as the family pulled off, they claimed that these private military contractors threw a rock into their window and it injured one of their children actually. And, you know, I, I really can't say because we didn't see it, but we saw the convoy dro drive by and it seemed like the car hadn't been there that long. So how were they viewed on the base? What did the average soldier think of them? A lot of them talked about how when they got out of the military, they went right back into being private military contractors because they had more freedom to do things. Like they talked about how much more freedom they had to do because even though there was when it comes down to being deployed downrange, you have to follow the rules of engagement. You have to follow the law of war. Now, people would say there's no such thing as a law of war. However, the United States military, they take pride in that. We do take pride in that because the thing is, if you don't follow rules, if you treat everybody like, you know, uh, you know, if you just start treating people poorly or if you start massacring people, then what are you fighting for? But these guys say, well, the rules are a little bit loose with us now i'm pretty sure they anybody could say that but i would hear them share the stories they would have about how many people they went out and say man it was so fun to kill some people and it, it was kind of disturbing to hear this stuff because you know you really shouldn't brag about you know people you know like that you kill necessarily because it's one thing to take on the enemy and to wipe the enemy out because it's either you or them but it seems like these guys were gloating like it was something glorious about it, which I kind of had a bit of a problem with at the time. I mean, even thinking about it now, in a way, kind of turns my stomach away because, you know, I get it. it. You're there for a reason. War is not a pretty thing. It's not meant to be a pretty thing. War is a very graphic detail, and there's a lot of horrible things that goes on downrange. But the thing is, though, is you can't be absolutely horrified by when you hear things that like what the Taliban does or ISIS does, but then you hear stories about people, you know, that we're supposed to stand for something that do the same thing. Granted, they're not in the military anymore, but they're still a part of our country. People remember stuff like that. So does a PMC soldier get paid more than a regular soldier? Well, I know they get paid more, but they actually are not allowed to tell you how much they make. But being a private military contractor or a contractor of any sort, whether it's uh, working as security or if you're just working, like there's people that work under government military contract because they get paid a lot of money, but they're not allowed to tell you how much money they make actually. That's something they actually have to sign a contract apparently indicating how much they actually make. In your opinion, do you think PMCs are a good idea or do you think they may be a long-term problem? Because the thing is, it's not necessarily a black and white statement right there because there has been times in the past where anybody on either side has gone a little too far. But the thing is, like, if you've got somebody in charge that's able to maintain order and discipline with guys and say, listen, you're not here to be a cowboy. You're not here to win a war. You're here for a specific job right here. Because you've got private military contractors that help with maritime security at times. But that's just because, like, you and I have talked about how maritime security is a real big deal. They're there to protect these cargo liners that are being hijacked by these pirates they're there for that specific reason which is a very very important task because you know these pirates are very well armed so again it all kind of goes back into are these guys mandated under certain laws and principles are they going to follow the same codes and rules that the soldiers have to apply to 
because if they're not going to, then how exactly are they going to be helping us, the United States military, in the long run? Because people will remember you. They're not going to care that you're just a private military contractor. If you do a bad thing and you're from the United States, that's all people are going to remember is that you're from the United States. That's the only thing they're going to know. So one of the main so one of the main proposals for PMCs is the privatization of the Afghan war. So what's your thoughts on that and what do you think the likely outcome would be if that were to happen? I think it's kind of a disaster waiting to happen honestly because the thing is is you know the one thing that the military is trying to do right now is ensure that we give the Afghan military and the Afghan government enough credibility to take their own country over. And they're doing that with combat advisors right now. The thing is, is that if you send a bunch of guys in that have maybe little to no experience in that regard, how is it they're going to change the way that war is fought? Especially when it comes to dealing with the Taliban, because the Taliban are going to remember who Eric Prince is. We have to remember something. The Taliban are not a bunch of fools. They're not just guys that sit in a cave. These guys are smart. They're going to do their research on their enemy. They're going to know their enemy just as well as they know themselves. So does anybody really think that the Taliban is just going to see these guys and say, oh, well, let's not mess with these guys. The Taliban have been fighting people for decades. And I don't think it's really going to be any different, regardless of who it might be. It is well known in the armed forces the reputation these PMCs have both in base and in the community. But is this a reputation across all nations? Well, to figure that out, we're going to take a look at the two biggest PMCs in the world. Frontier Services Group, the successor to Blackwater run by Eric Prince, mostly working for the US, and the Wagner Group, founded by Russian oligarch Yevgeny Prigozhin, working mostly for the Russian GRU. This week we have two guests who specialize in each of these companies and are going to help us lay out how they operate, who funds them, and where they are active, as well as where they're about to be active. So for now, let's turn to our third guest and talk about US PMCs and how they operate around the world. Part three, the good old boys. So I think the role of PMCs is going to be increasing in 2020, um, especially as we see countries trying to withdraw troops, especially states like the United States. Uh, the US is actually one of the largest users of PMCs. But at the same time, we have an administration that is really concentrated on reducing the number of troops and reducing US military commitments. But even if the US reduces its troops, it will have to fill the gap with somebody. And that is where PMCs will come in. Zahar Khan is a fellow at the Cato Institute and a member of the Leadership Council for the American Pakistan Foundation. She is also an expert on US PMCs, in particular their roles in Iraq and Afghanistan. And she joins us today. So if the Trump administration is reelected, for example, and if President Trump does withdraw troops from Syria, Afghanistan, even um, various other Middle Eastern posts, they will potentially be filled by private military and security companies. So let's talk about the most well-known PMC group, Blackwater, run by Eric Prince, uh, the group which became infamous for their work in Iraq and is now based in Hong Kong and call themselves Frontier Services Group. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? 
Sure. So both Blackwater and um, Frontier Services Group is is associated with Eric Prince, and and so Eric Prince, just to even talk about who he is, he is a, a former Navy SEAL who was uh, deployed. Um, with SEAL Team 8, and he was deployed to Haiti, the Balkans, and various other Middle East locations. And he left the Navy SEALs in 1995, and then he started Blackwater in 1997. And he says, and this is according to his autobiography, um, he says that he was, he's been really passionate about op- in, increasing operational support. And especially he's been focused on increasing the need um, for private facilities and and training for for special operations. And so that motivation took him to establish Blackwater in 1997. And even when we think about how Blackwater was established, I mean, he essentially moved to Virginia Beach and bought like 6,000 acres of land, which is about 24 square kilometers and just established a school for, you know, operational training. So that's where Blackwater um, was was born. Now, Blackwater played a really big role in, I would say, the Iraq war, like pre-invasion and even post-invasion. Blackwater essentially, you know, functions as, as a private company and it won a lot of government contracts and essentially the government outsourced a lot of the services that I mentioned before, like weapons procurement, personal security, military training, etc. They outsourced it to Blackwater and, and similar companies. Now, for the most part, Blackwater, um, I don't want to say that they were doing fine, but you know they were sort of functioning in a space where people weren't paying that much attention to them. But that changed in 2007. And so just very briefly, in in September 2007, there was a convoy of Blackwater contractors that was guarding U.S. State Department employees. And they went to a crowded square in Baghdad. Um, and, And when they were there... That's that's sort of the only fact that everybody agrees on. And the story then sort of diverges. And so Blackwater says that they were attacked. And so they responded uh, by following the rules of engagement. And they essentially shot at a car that also had a family in it. And in response, Iraqi police also began firing. And it ended up resulting in 20 civilians dying and including the family who was in the car. Now, Iraqi police and local witnesses say that that's necessarily that's not necessarily what happened. The convoy was going on its way. People were were moving out of its way on the road. There's one car that did not move out of its way. And it seems that the Blackwater uh, guards thought that was a threat and they opened fire. And that's sort of when things went went downhill. I mean, long story short, Iraq was outraged. Um, Iraqi Prime Minister at the time, Nouri al-Maliki, called the killings a crime. And there was a lot of public support for his um, for his statement as well. And Iraqi people essentially demanded, um, you know, demanded some accountability from, from Blackwater and not just Blackwater, but essentially from the United States. And I think that's when sort of the world even started paying a little more attention to private military security companies. Um, so, so Blackwater has since sort of dis- dismantled, and this happened in 2007. And, and long story short, there were about three guards who were convicted in October of 2014, I believe, on like 
14 manslaughter charges and that's where blackwater got its you know bad name but that didn't really stop eric prince he moved on to start frontier services group and the frontier services group differs from blackwater in the sense that it's not concentrated just on iraq um it's actually uh, it's based in hong kong and it's an african focused security aviation and logistics company and they again provide a range of services that i that i talked about before and um one of the interesting things I think about Frontier Services is that uh, Chinese stakeholders actually play a big role in the group. So, so, so these are the two main, um, I would say, private military security companies that people know about. But there, are, but I want to stress that they're not; these are not the only ones. There are virtually hundreds of them operating all over the world. So it's a well-known fact that Prince has a very close tie with the Bush and Trump White Houses, having frequent meetings with cabinet members from both administrations. Uh, how and why is Prince so close to these governments? So, you know, I think that's um, that that's a great question. <laughs> you know, he is, uh, he is very closely tied to the White House. And a lot of people don't know this, but the the U.S. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, is his sister. So anytime Eric Prince says that he doesn't really have any links to the Trump administration, um, he's essentially, if I could be so bold, um, he's essentially lying. Um, so so Eric Prince has had ties with, with the Trump administration. He has certainly been accused of almost lobbying for the Trump administration and almost working on his campaign. And in the United States, about a year or so ago, there, the Trump administration was being investigated by Prosecutor um, Mueller, and the report came out, and and Eric Trump was Eric Prince, sorry, was <laughs> um, Eric Prince, sorry, was um, you know mentioned in the report several times, and so his his links, I would say, are both personal and professional. So just considering the role that his sister plays in the administration, considering the amount of meetings that he had with with President Trump when he was a presidential candidate, that shows to me that there is certainly a personal link and perhaps even a friendship. Um, Eric Prince is even labeled as sort of the unofficial national security advisor of President Trump. Um, so, so I think that's sort of, you know, that's not based on empirical information. That's just sort of my observation that there must be a personal link. Now, professionally, um, Eric Prince, you know, is, was known for organizing a meeting that took place in 2016, where um, President Trump had just almost announced that he wanted to be, uh, you know, in the running for for president of the United States. And he introduced Lebanese American businessman uh, George Nader to um, President Trump. And one of the goals was to facilitate uh, President Trump's rise in the in the uh, Republican Party and to increase the chances of his bid for the White House. And, and since then, systematically, uh, Eric Prince has introduced President Trump to various um, businessmen in the UAE and in Russia um, that have now links to the Trump administration. So a few years ago, Prince moved the company from the US to Hong Kong. Uh, why do you think he did that? And do you think there's a bit of a conflict of interest there being so close to the Trump administration? 
Well, certainly there's a conflict of interest. Um, I think Eric Prince would probably say that, you know, there there really isn't a conflict of interest. It's a private company and he has, as a U.S. citizen, he has a right to base his company wherever he wants. Um, it doesn't mean that just because you're a U.S. citizen doesn't mean you have to be based in the United States. I think he probably chose Hong Kong because um, one of the largest shareholders in his company is a Chinese state-owned conglomerate called um, Cities Group. And so I think that's why he's based in Hong Kong, because it's it's closer and it's easier to get to Beijing. Um, and as far as a conflict of interest, absolutely, I think there's a conflict of interest, especially with his personal and I would even argue professional ties to the White House. So we don't usually do this, but let's pose a bit of a hypothetical here. If, for instance, ExxonMobil, a U.S. oil company, was unhappy with the U.S.'s tactic for dealing with Venezuela and wanted access to all their oil, could Exxon hire a PMC to help you know, design, orchestrate, and carry out a coup to topple the Venezuelan government? Uh, and this would give Exxon access to the oil and give it the outcome it's been chasing for a long time. Uh, at this point, if this was to go ahead... Would there be repercussions against ExxonMobil uh, for being a part of this, or would there just be strong words from the government? Yeah, it would be ExxonMobil who would be liable for that. Um, and I think that's interesting too, right? Generally, what we've seen for private military and security companies is that states tend to hire them, not like private companies. You know, so, so I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, but for the most part, states are the ones who have been hiring private security companies, not necessarily... I would say other companies. Um, but that said, if ExxonMobil or any other large oil company did hire somebody like Eric Prince, I think there will definitely be an issue in terms of you know legal jurisdiction, who is to be held accountable. Um, nobody really knows because even it would depend on which company Eric Prince is using. If he's using Frontier Services and it's based in Hong Kong, I mean, is it and it has Chinese shareholders, is it considered a Chinese company or is it considered an American company? And based on that logic, different laws, it would be subjected to different laws and even different regulatory systems. So I think the problem with PNCs, of course, is that it's really hard to figure out how to regulate them. So there would likely be so much confusion surrounding this on who is responsible and who can be charged. Exxon may actually get away with no charges and still get the desired outcome they were chasing in the first place. It's also interesting too, right? When we think about just the, the the fact that you asked me this question, could ExxonMobil hire a PMC? I mean, I think that begs the question, well then are states the only actors in the international system that are important, right? I think that they are not. I think that they're getting competition from really large companies because if you can have a large company, say BP hires you know, a PMC because they feel like they need security and the state that they're, you know, potentially looking for oil in, it doesn't have security services, so they're going to hire, you know, somebody to provide them security. On the surface, it seems like a perfectly logical thing to want. Um, you know, you can't do good business without having security. But I think the issue then becomes also then these businesses are so big, they almost operate like a state. And if they're operating like a state, well, then what does that mean then for the international system? And what does that mean then for the state itself who claims to have a monopoly on the use of force? Because it seems that they don't really have a monopoly anymore. So Eric Prince keeps popping up in Turkey of all places at the moment. Why do you think he keeps traveling there? And what is he hoping to achieve? Well, I think he wants, you know, uh, 
to take over the vacuum that would be created if U.S. troops left Turkey. And so I think that's why he's there. He's sort of lobbying for his services. And I think he wants to present the case that to a lot of stakeholders, especially involved in, in the Syrian war, they, they and especially who are, who are involved in Turkey, um, I think he wants to make his case, which is that if U.S. troops withdraw, don't worry, I can provide services that are comparable to the services U.S. troops would provide because essentially the people that I have are ex-U.S. soldiers. So I think, number one, that's why he's there. Second, um, I think, you know, with the Trump administration and the, the Trump administration's general stance of reducing the number of troops, I think Eric, Trim, Eric Prince views this as an opportunity to, you know, promote his business model, which is that wars can be privatized. If wars are privatized, they would run more effectively and potentially end sooner, which I disagree with. I don't think they would end sooner. Um, because from a logical point of view, if you're in the business of making war, why would you want the war to end, right? Doesn't seem like a good business model, but you know, we could talk about that further. But, um, but yeah, I think he's in Turkey because he wants to sell, this is an opportunity to sell his company and to broaden his services even more. So Eric is an American with a Republican leaning. Uh, and very close ties to particularly the Trump White House. Uh, he usually works under contract from the USA in the USA's best interests abroad. But given his political leanings and being outside the official system, do you think he would ever work to undermine a Democratic presidential candidate or against a Democratic administration? Absolutely. And I think you're being really politically correct by saying he's Republican leaning. I mean, he's Republican. <laughs> I mean, there's no, you know, he wants to run for the Wyoming Senate seat for now. I mean, this is my guess. He has said openly a couple of times that he would like to run. He could envision himself as running um, as a senator. And I, I think it's just a matter of, of time before we actually see Eric Prince running if that makes sense. So right now, it's obviously President Trump is going to run for for re-election. And if, you know, President Trump wins, then obviously, you know, in four years, we're going to see the Republican nomination process. And so I think Eric Prince would potentially try to help the Republican nominee. So it's not that he would necessarily go against or try to counter a Democratic nominee, but I think he would lend support to them. But that said, I mean, I, I have no idea because he might have political ambitions himself. He might be running for Senate. So we'll just have to see what he does politically. So let's look to the future now. Where are we likely to see American PMCs popping up over the next few years? Well, I would say definitely um, the Middle East, and which is already happening now. And especially, you know, the Gulf region, um, if, if, you know, especially if there's some sort of economic peril with, with, with Qatar and the UAE, they haven't really diversified their economies. And, and if oil prices are going the way they are, that might end up being, uh, you know, an unstable situation. And Africa, I think Africa is, is a hotbed for conflict. And I think it will unfortunately remain so. And I actually think that PMCs being involved would probably increase conflict points. 
Um, and I think we we see this in Iraq, right? Um, I mean, we don't necessarily need to look forward and predict. We can look in our past, um, just recent past, to see the role that PMCs have played. And just uh, Iraq is a classic example of this, that there were many people who, who were in the United States were advocating for the U.S. war to the U.S. to invade Iraq that has gone horribly wrong, and PMCs have added to the instability, and they have eroded any kind of goodwill that may have existed um, in Iraqi hearts and minds. And so, I don't think PMCs are a solution at all. If our if our goal is to reduce the number of flashpoints to reduce war, then privatizing war is not going to do it. So we've seen how the US's main PMC is fairly opaque when it comes to its allegiances. They work for the US, but they're based in China. They support American democracy, but only for one of the parties. They advocate for trying to shorten wars, but make all their money lengthening them. The more you look into people like Eric Prince, it seems the less you understand where he morally sits. Is it the money, or is it his country that holds his true loyalty? But this is a very different situation to the Russian PMC, the Wagner Group. And to compare these two, we turn to our next guest. Part 4. From Russia with arms. The Wagner Group is a private military security company um, that has operated in Ukraine, Syria, Libya, Sudan. It has a long history um, that dates back to the early 2000s um, during the breakup of the Soviet Union. Most people know uh, the story of the Wagner Group as the story of a man named Yevgeny Prigozhin who um, was close to Vladimir Putin for many years back in the day when Putin was deputy mayor in St. Petersburg and uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin was a hot dog salesman uh, come caterer. Uh, In actual fact, Yevgeny Prigozhin is really just a middleman, a sort of beard, if you will, for a much larger enterprise of networked state enterprises, uh, such as Sovkomflot, uh, Stroitransgaz, and other big shipping and oil and energy companies that are mostly state-owned. Candice Rondu is a senior professor of politics and global studies at Arizona State University, as well as being a senior fellow at the New America Think Tank. She also wrote the amazing paper, Decoding the Wagner Group, and she joins us today. So the Wagner Group really is just a shorthand for uh, mercenaries that operate on behalf of the Russian state. Unfortunately, um, they're also a very useful means of um, Russia's ability to project power. Uh, they look like, on paper, um, a sort of ghost army. In reality, they're really just a series of contingents that work for state enterprises. So in a nutshell, um, they're really just an extension of the Russian state. So I want to figure out how close Prigozhin and Wagner are to the Kremlin. You know, during war planning and high-level classified operational meetings in the Kremlin, is Wagner likely to have a seat at the table? That's a, that's a very good question. 
likely, yes, today that is the case. Um, but we have to, to understand Wagner, we have to kind of cast almost all the way back to the 1960s, 1970s. Um, in fact, most weapons and arms deals between the Soviet Union and countries like Syria and other client countries like Sudan were done under an umbrella of military technical agreement. And typically what came with the package, let's say you bought a bunch of tanks or um, anti-aircraft uh, artillery batteries, um, typically what would happen is a group of special forces, Spetsnaz as they call them, would be sent along with those materials to help the local army, whether it was Syria or Sudan, train up on how to use them. And they would stay in place. So in fact, at well before uh, Wagner appeared on the scene, you know, circa 2013, 2014, there was already a pre-existing kind of line um, going all the way from Moscow uh, to Damascus. And there were barracks there. Uh, later, after the Soviet Union broke apart and there was a kind of reorganization of the military industrial complex in Russia, what ultimately happened was large companies like Gazprom, Stroytransgaz, uh, Float, each was allowed to hire their own private army. And, you know, Gazprom back in the 1990s had a private army of something like 30,000 uh, roughly men, uh, many of whom operated abroad because, of course, Gazprom had big business abroad. Uh, that was also true of Stroytransgaz, which is a big um, uh, energy infrastructure producer. So what would be one of the major differences here between, let's say, Wagner and Blackwater? Well, they're quite different in the sense that Blackwater is a strictly private enterprise. And it, you know, while it contracts occasionally with governments, uh, it, you know, and it has contracted, for instance, with the U.S. government, oftentimes the contracting mechanisms are strictly private. With the Wagner Group, everything is pretty much state to state. So um, when, for instance, in 2013, um, rebel forces overran a major gas plant uh, at Al-Shir, which is a big, huge gas plant, it was one of the few um, reproduction refineries in the center of, of Syria. So strategically, it was very important. When that was overrun, um, ultimately, it was really the Russian state through Concord and Everpolis, this other subsidiary shell company, that ended up contracting the security forces, the Russian security forces that we know as Wagner, to go and take it back, right? Um, but that deal was part of a, a larger, uh, almost treaty-like arrangement between the Syrian state and Russia. So Wagner seems far more tied to the Kremlin and its goals than Frontier would be to the White House and its goals. Uh, we know Blackwater could possibly be bought off, but what about Wagner? Could the USA, let's say, pay them enough to get them to abandon their war in eastern Ukraine and simply return to Russia? Yeah, loyalty is a really interesting question to be asking about these, um, these troops. The reality is nobody can buy them out because they would never be able to go home again. And that actually points to the level of control that 
different elements of the Russian Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Interior, uh, Emergency Services uh, Ministry exert over private military security contractors. Many of the the folks who sign up to become part of a PMSC that we know as, as Wagner are ext- extremely poor. They're socially marginalized, they're politically marginalized. Uh, they tend to drift toward very right-wing nationalist causes. They really have lost a lot of status in large part because of the reorganization of the Russian military, uh, which has taken place over a couple different generations. But most recently in 2012, there was a big shakeup that put a lot of people basically out of work um, and made for this kind of rolling contracting service. So in actual fact, um, loyalty is in some ways um, a little bit about the social pressures and the economic pressures that these um, members of Wagner are, are under. It is not always necessarily about, you know, sort of in defense of the motherland, although there is a great deal of patriotism uh, about the mission. So no, I don't think it would be possible um, for the United States to, to buy out Wagner. Uh, there is no higher bidder than the Russian state when it comes to the Wagner group. So where Wagner really made its name was in Ukraine, both in the fighting in Crimea, but also in Luhansk in the east of the country. Uh, how did Wagner get started with that war in eastern Ukraine? Yeah, so what's interesting about Wagner is that it really is, um, it really only appears on the scene after, as I mentioned, this this kind of skirmish uh, that becomes public in Tadmor in 2013. And, and then suddenly we start to see and hear, you know, bits and bobs about Wagner Group operating on the front lines, first in Crimea, but actually more in Luhansk, which is the uh, district that's part of the Donbass region that has been contested. And it is around 2014 when um, Alexei Milchakov, who's a young man, he's from St. Petersburg, appears on the scene in Donbass and a couple of other guys, Dmitry Utkin, start to kind of pop up uh, in Luhansk as things are going quite badly for Russia. They're on the back foot. The Ukrainian forces have managed to push them back. And um, there's a sort of spring offensive underfoot. And bit by bit, you start to hear, you know, there's these guys with um, Viking symbols and Nazi symbols popping up all over the place. And eventually they form uh, a sort of little mini platoon and become part of a battalion known as the Batman Group. Uh, and the Batman Battalion, you know, was a bunch of special forces, Spetsnaz soldiers, uh, largely from Russia, who were either dropped in, marched in, uh, or floated in um, across the Black Sea, across the Sea of Azov. And they became kind of this core vanguard to control what was becoming uh, a bunch of banditry. Um, The Donbass rebels who were fighting the Ukrainian government were out of control, looting, uh, stealing, taking people hostages. Um, It was was so out of control that the Russian government felt that that was part of the discipline problem that led to the Ukrainian forces making so much headway. So the Wagner group was really brought in as this sort of disciplinary force uh, on the front line. But they were also very interesting in the sense that they provided 
um, an opportunity to promote uh, this sort of heroic vision of the Spetsnaz, Russian Spetsnaz on the rise, uh, battling for the motherland. That is what the Wagner Group is, essentially. It is a mythological um, sort of handle for the rise of the Russian Spetsnaz and the revival of, of Russian military power, not only in Ukraine, but across the world. So I want to get a better idea about Wagner's roles. Uh, they're very active in African countries like Libya and Mozambique, but they're particularly busy in the Central African Republic. Uh, what are Russian mercenaries doing in this small African country? So what Wagner seems to be doing in the Central African Republic is supporting mining operations. Mining in places like Central African Republic, places like Sudan, uh, where they also operate, can be a very dangerous um, job because very valuable materials are be being taken out of the ground. And the state um, tends to want to protect those valuable materials uh, because it's a, it's a rentier state. Um, in the case of CAR, uh, we know that there's a lot of gold. Um, and in fact, what we are beginning to theorize is that um, part of the conglomerate um, small networks of energy uh, production uh, companies that hire the Wagner Group um, are really quite interested in the, this mining basin that runs from uh, Libya through Sudan um, and then parts of CAR. And it seems that gold is, uh, is certainly a big um, interest and focus of, uh, of the racket. But it also seems that other materials like cobalt and um, very high value military grade minerals um, are being sought and being protected by the Wagner Group in these areas. So there's been a lot of reporting that Wagner is using hit squads to kill members of the Kurdish and Syrian governments and help shape an overall more friendly leadership toward Moscow. Uh, is there any truth to these reports? Yeah, I think there's probably some truth to that. I mean, just if we look at the history, you know, their history in Donbass, we know that they were connected with uh, the assassination of a number of Donbass rebel generals or commanders um, who, you know, were getting in the way. They were perhaps intractable or unmanageable. Um, we also know that that probably has occurred in Syria. Um, it's possible that they export this model to other places. But I think the thing that's really important to understand about the Wagner Group is that most of um, the men who fight for the Wagner Group come from a particular class of special operators who are trained in you know, deep reconnaissance. So in fact, when, what, what we're really looking at is guys who are very, very skilled at operating at you know on a low-grade profile, slipping into countries, operating as tourists, as we say, um, and then suddenly cropping up um, to do things like, yes, indeed, uh, decapitate leadership. That is, in fact, the entire mission of Alpha and Vimple was, uh, you know, deep reconnaissance and decapitation. So it would be no surprise whatsoever to find evidence that they had done that in other countries. So Wagner is also inside the same parent group as the famous Internet Research Agency. Uh, the organization that houses the troll farms and the data mining that plays huge influential roles in countries' elections, most famously the U.S. election. 
Do you think Wagner works in tandem with the IRA? Uh, and do you think they work their actions together for maximum effectiveness? There is no doubt, uh, and there is reliable proof that um, the subsidiaries that work with the Concord Management Group have hired what are called political technologists that typically accompany operations on the ground by Spetsnaz operators affiliated with the Wagner Group. Uh, the paper trail on that is well established. Uh, the Dossier Center has done a lot of good work on this with their investigation into the Central African Republic. Um, and there's a clear trail um, of, of relationships. And in fact, that really speaks volumes about, again, um, the real focus here of the Russian state. These political technologists are typically deployed. Um, they have you know, degrees in anthropology, sociology, right? they're, they're linguists. So they know uh, the regions that they are being deployed to. They are almost always uh, on the same flights as you know, many of the leading operators of the Wagner Group, especially at the outset of an operation. We saw that in Syria, we saw it in Sudan, uh, and we have certainly seen it in Libya, where we have, I think, two or three um, Russian nationals affiliated with the Internet Research Agency uh, and uh, various subsidiaries of the Concord Management Group who are now under arrest for espionage for their involvement in social media uh, propaganda campaigns. So the business model seems to be, um, you know, we've got some military technical equipment we'd like to give to you, let's say a bunch of tanks. Um, we're going to have an agreement, a military technical co cooperation agreement. And by the way, if you're, if you're interested in maintaining power, I, I see that you have an election coming up. Um, we do have some advisors who can help you with, you know, um, some political advice on how to secure the elections, right? That's, I think, the typical model um, by which we see the IRA uh, and the Wagner, Wagner Group working cheek by jowl. But then there's another tier. Uh, and there's Fan, which is, uh, in the Syrian context, the main propaganda video uh, news outlet that follows the Wagner Group um, from place to place, glorifying their missions. Uh, making sure that there's always a camera ready uh, for, so something can be uploaded, a clip can be up uploaded to uh, YouTube or, you know, a photo can be uploaded to Instagram. So it's a pretty big enterprise, actually, and it's, it's highly integrated. So it seems the main theatre everyone's involved with at the moment is Syria. So what is Wagner's endgame in that country? The main strategic goal of, of Wagner in Syria has always been to secure energy enterprise. And they have done that. They have succeeded um, now uh, in pretty much taking most of the most valuable strategic energy infra infrastructure in the country um, back for the Syrian government. Uh, it has been hotly contested, as you know, in February 2018, uh, their attempt to do so at the ConocoPhillips uh, gas plant near the Euphrates River, which is right on the deconfliction line, led to the, the deaths of probably in, you know upwards of 200 to 250 Russian and Syrian fighters who were um, killed in a U.S. Um, battle there. So that has, that has always been their main goal, um, and it remains so. They will um, likely be involved in securing infrastructure for a very long time to come. Um, there's still work to be done to connect Syria's pipeline infrastructure to Latakia, and you may have noticed this, or it's actually sort of 
a little bit under under the radar, little news reports about uh, attempts, um, mysterious attempts to cut those pipelines that lead into uh, Latakia under underwater, and it seems like um, somebody's finally gotten the notion that it's important to make it difficult strategically for Russia to continue to um, operate its pipelines there. So that's one of the main um, real reasons. And the other, of course, is to ensure that any Russian state enterprises that are doing business with the Syrian government are able to do so safely. That's the main objective. So what's next? Where is Wagner likely to pop up in over the next few years? Well, I think there are certainly reasons to be concerned about Belarus. Uh, Belarus. Um, I think there's, you know, this debate that is now going on in Belarus over whether or not to, you know, join in the Eurasian Union as proposed by Putin, um, is one that sort of mirrors what we saw in Ukraine back in 2013, 2014, and there is more pushback this time, um, right up front from Belarus. At the same time, there's very large Russian-speaking population there. I mean, Belarus is essentially, you know, an extension in some ways of Russia. Historically, um, you know, there's always been this sort of very blurry line between um, the Russian state and what is Belarus today. Um, So I would not be surprised if for some reason Um, Russia's energy enterprise interests were threatened there or its economic interests were threatened there, that we didn't see a reprise, right, of what we saw in Ukraine with little green men there. I also would be um, unsurprised to see any sort of cropping up in Algeria. Um, The Russian state also has huge enterprise uh, in Algeria. uh, And if it detects any sort of sense of instability there, uh, it will be first in. Uh, with little green men in Algeria. And that would be easy to do, easy to insert from Libya, uh, easy to insert from Sudan and other places. Um, There's a great deal of cooperation, of course, as you know, between Russia and Egypt today militarily. Um, I don't see uh, little green men necessarily popping up in Egypt, but um, that degree of cooperation affords Russia the ability to operate um, pretty much with impunity, you know, across North Africa. So if we see instability there um, in a way that threatens Russia's enterprises uh, vis-a-vis energy and or arms shipments, then we certainly could expect to see them there. PMCs have been bubbling under the surface for a long time, gaining more and more influence in their respective nations. They allow countries to order abhorrent actions and then turn around and tell the cameras they had nothing to do with it. They allow a country to effectively invade another country through proxy. Except this time, it's not limited to just nation-states. Corporations can now wield the full armed forces that governments once had a monopoly on. For now, this hasn't produced too much blowback. But I'm sure it will do soon, as countries continue to greenlight illegal actions under the misguided thought that the populace it's inflicted upon will not turn around and see through the single degree of separation between the actions inflicted and the person paying for it. The even scarier bit is knowing that particularly with the American PMCs, that many of them would turn around and work actively against their own country under the orders of the highest bidder. And it may be going on now, 
with America's largest PMC, the one frequently having meetings in the White House, being based in Hong Kong and having its biggest shareholder being the Chinese government. The whole concept is so badly regulated and has become such a grey area to almost turn into the Wild West. Which is bad when it's a few players, but disastrous when it's many of them. If small nations were to pay PMCs to carry out attacks or terrorism on larger nations, we don't really have the legal precedence or know-how to know what to do about it. And I don't think we should wait for someone to test out that theory. Is this the future of war? Or is this an experiment that's already showing its flaws? Only time will tell. But for now, all we can do is watch the money and witness these contract soldiers follow the orders. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned into the show this week. With any luck, this episode will be the one to finally crack 100,000 streams, which will be a huge deal for us. When we started the show in October, we had no idea that it would reach the levels it has. We cannot thank each and every one of our past guests and friends of the show enough for their support and help with this one. If you want to help us out even further, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on at the Red Line Pod, or you can find myself on Twitter at Mike Hilliard Oz. You can also find us on Patreon and help donate money to the show to let us chase bigger stories and find more editors and more social media people to get us to a bigger audience. Sean McFate can be found on Twitter at Sean McFate, and he has an amazing book called The New Rules of War coming out in June which goes through all of these issues, and I'll be sure to read myself. Alex Kirch runs the great Depth of Perspective show, which can be found on most major platforms as well as YouTube, and I recommend you check it out. Sahar Khan can be followed on Twitter at KhanSahar1, and you can see some of her great work with the Cato Institute there. Candice Rondu can be found on Twitter at Candice Rondu, which we'll link in this episode. Uh, she's always releasing great papers, and it's amazing to get her on this for this program. As always, the show wouldn't work without the help from our amazing friend Mark Spencer, who provides the additional vocals from the episodes. I highly recommend you go check out his show Climactic. Now more than ever, his show should be front of mind for most people. Thank you, and once again, and please all stay safe in this trying time. No matter how crazy and dark the times have gotten, humans have always got through it. I always remind myself of reading British newspapers from the First World War. Sometimes the papers talked about the war being lost in the summer of 1918, even though they would eventually go on to win it three months later, after almost five years of war. They couldn't know that they were only three months away from victory when the Germans were making their final pushes. Being in the middle of it sometimes clowns your ability to see the big picture, and panic can take over. No matter how dark the time is, no matter how far away the victory is, Hope is rarely lost. Defeat is never a guarantee, and victory is always possible. We will be back in a fortnight with another episode. But if you need a friend, or you have questions, or you're going stir-crazy, please feel free to hit me up on Twitter. I'm always here to chat or in help where I can. Thank you again for all your support, and I hope you have a good evening, and good luck.